You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. God, you are the almighty one. You are all-powerful. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, God, we come and we ask boldly, Lord, we ask for your presence to continue to minister in this place. We pray that as your word is open, that we would hear your voice that's like thunder, Lord, that we would see, Lord, your glowing face that shines uh, like the sun, Lord, that we would uh, have a sense of your holiness and your presence, that we would worship you in reverence and in awe. Lord, I pray that you would move by your spirit, Lord, and I, I pray, Lord God, that you would do a work in us as, as individuals, Lord, but also a supernatural work as us, as a community of faith, as the church of the living God, Lord, that that you would unite us as we hear your voice and as we lift our voices to, to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. We pray for your supernatural work in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated and get a Bible uh, in your hands. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle with uh, copies of the Bible that we'd love to, uh, to lend to you. And... Um, you can start by turning to Matthew chapter 28. I'll meet you there in a minute. We're in a series called uh, This is Our a Church. And it's a, a series intended for those who find themselves bored with church or busy with a lot of uh, church activities or burned out because they were doing too much in church and now feel like they can't do anything or those who have been burned by some sort of uh, relational breakdown within the church, the way that they were uh, treated within the church. And last week we, we looked at uh, 1 Timothy 3.15 to, to see that the church is relational, it's the household of God, it's a family, that's supernatural, that we're the church of the living God and when we get together it's supposed to manifest who God is and that it's immovable, that we're the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Last week was all about who we are as a church and why we are that way. And, and today we're, we're, we're moving past the idea of who we are and, and why we are and we're moving now to um, what are we called to do and how are we supposed to do. And so with this is our church, we, we've looked at this is who we are, now we're going to look at this is what we do. One of the reasons why we find ourselves bored or busy or burned out or burned is because of lack of clarity. A bored person would be, would be bored with church because they don't understand what the church is all about and what the church is actually trying to accomplish. It's like watching a, a sport and you don't understand the rules. It's, it's, it's boring. If you were to sit down, if you're not familiar with the game of cricket, you, you might think the game is boring because you don't understand what is the bowler trying to do? What is, the, what is the batsman trying to accomplish? Why do they keep running back and forth? Why aren't they running around a diamond like in baseball? But it, it's that you don't understand. And, and, but if you, if you get clarity on the rules, then everything changes. 
And sometimes we can get so busy and the busyness prevents us. We're so busy doing all these things that, that our clarity on why we're doing, how do all of these small activities and programs that I've involved in, how do they actually fit into the big picture? Because if you busy yourself with all of these small things without fitting it into the big picture, without seeing how all of those small pieces fit into the whole, that's going to lead to burnout. Because you're not going to see the purpose. You're not going to see a call or the need for endurance in these things. Because you're only looking at the small things. And those of us who have been burned so often, relational breakdown comes, comes from unmet expectations. And unmet expectations so often come from unclear expectations. And so our aim here is to be clear. Clear about who we are as a church. You may not agree with everything that is said here today, but my prayer is that you would not walk out of here being like, what is Harvest Bible Chapel all about? I, our aim is for you to understand. If there were a Wikipedia article about Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton, it would sound like this. This is who we are as a church. And so uh, today's message is going to be a little bit different from the way messages normally work at our church. Normally we work through sort of one paragraph or one chapter or a couple of verses from God's word. Today we're going to look at about 16 or 17 different verses. So uh, if you've got a Bible in your hand, just, just raise it up for me right now. Uh, so this Bible is going to be uh, smoking hot from friction by the end of the day because you're going to be flipping through it so, uh, so much. So start in Matthew uh, chapter 8. This is the Great Commission. This is our mission. And you can uh, jot this down in your notes. Our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. So in Matthew 28, Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and he's called a special meeting with his disciples, and this is what he said to them in verse 19. He came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. First of all, I want you to make note what's important in Bible study to pay attention to repeated words. Pay attention to the word all. He says in, in verse 18, all authority has been given to me. Then in verse 19, go to all nations. Then verse 20, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And then he says at the end of verse 20, I am with you always. And so the Great Commission is about being about Jesus telling all of the things, all of the authority that he has and all that he is calling us to do. It's also important before we get into what Jesus commanded us to do to notice that he sandwiches the command or the commission with two incredible statements about himself. Do you see that in verse 18? The beginning of the sandwich he says, all authority has been given to me. So the one who is speaking, the one who is giving the orders is the one who is large and in charge. The one who has authority over heaven and over earth. The one who is sending us in a place, he never sends us to a place where he doesn't have full jurisdiction. He has all authority. And then he promises at the end, he says, and I am with you always. So not only does he command us and say, go off and do it because I have authority. No, he says, go and do it and I am going to be with you. The commission is a co-mission. He has promised to be with us. Now, now let's get into what he says. He says, go therefore and make disciples. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Now, uh, when you start translating things from one language into another, there's a, there's a, a number of sort of a speed bumps that you hit or, or, or challenges that you face. One of them is word order. And the way the Greek language orders words or grammatically constructs sentences is different from the way that you would do that in English. And so the main verb in the Great Commission is not the word go. And that's important because I want to talk to the busy people. The main command is not go. Because some of you are just, you're just going everywhere. You're, going, you're doing all of these things, going to these programs, going to do all of these activities. The main command is not go. The main command is to make disciples. Go is actually a participle, an I-N-G word. It, it, the best way to translate it would be to say to make disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching. And so for those of us who are busy doing things, we need to, we need to take a step back and look at what we're doing and ask a question. How does my volunteering at Awana contribute to the mission of making disciples? How is my job on the setup team not just plugging in wires and setting up chairs, but how is that small thing that I am doing fitting into the big picture of making disciples? That is what we are called to do, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to do it in three ways. Those three participles, we're supposed to do it by going. Going involves intentionality. It involves going to the farthest edge of our comfort zone and moving that much further. We are called to go, to go, to be purposeful, to be intentional. We're called to go baptizing. Now, as you go, we don't invite you to, in to do the baptism like in your bathtub. Uh, uh, this is something that, that we are all to be uh, involved in. I'm going to talk a, a little bit more about the gospel later, but the essence of baptism is, is in a picture. It's an identification of the gospel, that you're identifying with Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And then teaching them, teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded. That's a tall order. I mean, we've got four gospels worth of content here of commands that Jesus gave. We've got everything that, that the, the apostles were inspired to command. And so how are we supposed to teach him, teach people to obey everything that he has commanded? Has he given us a helpful summary of his command? Well, he has. In Matthew 22, it's called the Great Commandment. So turn with me there. I wasn't lying. We're turning to a lot of places. So let's go. Matthew 22, 37 to 39. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who normally wouldn't team up at all, they were always arguing with each other, but they found a common enemy in Jesus Christ, and they tried to trap Jesus, and so they sent this scholar to him to ask him a question about the commandments uh, to try to trap him in his words, and Jesus uh, answered the question. The question was, what's the greatest commandment in, the wor in, the, in, in God's word? And Jesus said in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this isn't new content. Jesus is just quoting the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. But he's emphasizing something very important. That the essence of his teaching, the essence of the teaching of the whole Bible is to love God and to love our neighbor. That's what, we, that's what a disciple does. A disciple loves God and a disciple loves neighbors. And when we're making disciples, we're teaching people to love God and to love their neighbor. It's important for us to recognize when we 
look at the Great Commission and when we look at the Great Commandment, that the vertical, our relationship with God, always comes first, then the horizontal. All authority has been given to me. That's vertical. That's how we relate to Jesus. Surely I'm with you always. That's vertical. Then go and make disciples. And then love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then out of an overflow of that love that you have for God, go and love those that bear his image. Go and love your neighbor. So that is our mission. Our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the spirit of the Great Commandment. Second, our foundation. Jesus Christ is our foundation. Jesus Christ, Son of God, and the substitute for sinners. It's his commission that we're fulfilling. It's his command that we're obeying. He is our foundation. You have no Jesus. You have no church. You have no point. And so Jesus Christ is our foundation. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. The New Testament uses a lot of metaphors to talk about the church. Last week we talked about the, the family uh, metaphor, the, the prevailing metaphor that we use at Harvest to describe what our church is all about is another biblical metaphor, the metaphor of architecture. And we talk about in terms of a, the church, us as, as the people of God, fit together as a building for God's glory, built up for Him. And it all starts with the foundation. Doesn't matter how nice the windows are, if you get the foundation wrong, the whole thing's coming down. It doesn't matter what paint colors you've chosen. What matters is the foundation strong. Jesus, or, uh, the Apostle Paul said about this about Jesus in verse 11 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He said, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. And our role is to remain on that foundation. That is what we are called to do. Now let's look at the sentence that we've written here. That Jesus is the Son of God and the substitute for sinners. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that he came to this earth fully man and yet fully God. Not compromising at all in his deity or his divinity and not compromising at all in his humanity. And we don't simply believe that Jesus was the son of God. We don't simply believe that Jesus was God simply because it's intellectually stimulating or theologically accurate. There's a reason why we believe that. There's a reason why the Bible goes to great pains to describe how, how Jesus was, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It, there's a reason why all of these miracles are described. There's a reason why Jesus explicitly um, uh, talks about how God is his Father, how he forgives sins, how he does things that only God can do, how he performs miracles. There's a reason. Because Jesus came on a mission. We are on a co-mission because Jesus came on a mission. He came to be a substitute for sinners. Which means he came to be a substitute for me. He came to be a substitute for you. And in order to understand the importance of his substitution for us, we need to understand the significance of sin. Sin is serious. Sin is just not a matter of, you know, well, hey, nobody's perfect, everybody makes mistakes, you know. No, you see, we have been created. We are creatures and there is a creator. And we are accountable to our creator for our behavior. And God has revealed in his commands and in our conscience how we ought to live. And all of us have rejected God. 
not just simply, you know, run away from God, but full out rebelled against him. And all of us must give an account before God for how we have lived our lives. And there is a judgment, there is a punishment that is looming over all of us. Now, the punishment that someone receives for a crime is is dependent upon who that crime was committed against. If I were to to go home today and and to go out to the, the front of my house and to start punching my brick wall, no one would call the, well maybe someone would call the cops, but I would not get a, vandalism maybe? But there would, there would be no need to press charges. But if, if I went from punching my wall to going over to my neighbor and doing the same thing to, not their house, but to them, I wouldn't be loving my neighbor, would I? But that would be a very different story. Punching a wall is very different from punching a person. Then I would be charged with assault, and I would be accountable, and there would be a punishment for me to behave in that way. So, What you sin against determines the seriousness of your punishment. So you move from a wall to a person to the almighty, holy creator of the universe. So the punishment that all of us deserve for our sin, just even even one sin, because it's a sin against God, because it's a rebellion against his purpose and plan, his command and our conscience, there is an eternal punishment looming over all of us even for one sin. Now, this is why it's so crucial that Jesus is the Son of God, because he came on a mission to be the substitute for sinners. Because Jesus, being fully human, could die on the cross to pay the penalty that humans deserve. He could stand in my place. A human committed the sin, so a human needs to pay for the sin. And Jesus was fully human, but he wasn't only human. He was also fully God. And In a moment, in an instant, because he is an eternal being, he could satisfy an eternal punishment, the eternal wrath of God for our sin. So Jesus could say, it is finished, and in a millisecond, the wrath of God that was looming all of us, the punishment that all of us deserve, was taken away because it was all poured out on him. He was punished in our place. He was treated the way that we deserve to be treated. He went to the place where we belong, the cross, so that we, by his grace, could go to the place where only he belongs, in heaven, where we can be called sons and daughters of God, because Jesus, the Son of God, is the substitute for sinners. And loved ones, that is the foundation of our church. The mission of making disciples is telling people this incredible story, this foundation that Jesus is the Son of God and the substitute for sinners. Then we have our pillars. Our pillars are unashamed adoration or lifting high the name of Jesus in worship or unapologetic preaching, which means that we preach the authority of God's word without apology. Unceasing prayer, that we believe firmly in the power of prayer and unafraid witness, sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. Unashamed adoration, unapologetic preaching, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Now, the purpose of a pillar is not to go out beyond the foundation, but to make sure that the structure is firmly fixed on the foundation. The point of all of these pillars is to keep our focus and our attention fixed on the foundation, Jesus Christ. 
unashamed adoration, the worship of Jesus, the point of that pillar, the reason why we come together and sing is to make sure that we are fixed on that foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what we are called to do, to be worshipers. That is what brings us together as a church, this pillar of Worship, worship in spirit and in truth, the truth about who God is, the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. You fast forward to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is being worshipped by all the heavenly beings. Revelation chapter 7, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are worshipping Jesus. That's what holds the church together, is a common commitment to worship Jesus Christ. And that's, that's, it's, it's, it's happening now. It's going to happen all on into eternity. But, this, but the worship must happen in the context of truth. That's why unapologetic preaching is so important. Did you like how I put that one verse on the screen for you, John 4, 24? That's it. The rest you're all going to have to turn. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 right now. 2 Timothy chapter 3, unapologetic preaching. Unapologetic preaching. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's be diligent in looking up these verses. The authority doesn't come from what I have to say, but what God's word has to say. Unapologetic preaching. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good Work. When I think about our church, maybe as a sports team, I don't even imagine myself as a player. I'm not even a coach. My job is the equipment manager. I'm the one that sharpens the skates, that tapes up the hockey sticks. I'm the one that cleans the shorts and the socks and scrapes the mud out of the cleats. That's my job. My job is to equip you to, to do the work of ministry. The work, the, the, every good work that we're supposed to do here in church and every good work that we're supposed to do beyond our walls. That's that's our calling, that's my calling, to be the equipment manager. So in light of that, in light of the fact that all scripture is breathed by God, every single word that we have here in God's word is there because God wanted it there. And then Paul gets really serious with young Timothy. He says, hey, look at me, Pastor Tim. Hey, listen to me, Pastor Ted. Listen to me, Pastor Chris, Pastor, Pastor Marv, those who are called upon to, uh, to preach he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. He has all authority. And by his appearing in his kingdom, verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. We're called upon to preach the word. We're supposed to preach it with authority. We're not, we're, it's supposed to be unapologetic, which means that we're, 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 not, we're not embarrassed about what God's word says. We're not apologizing or excusing or skipping over parts of what God's word has revealed. But again, the point of the pillar is not to go beyond the foundation, but to keep us fixed on the foundation. So turn with me to the greatest sermon that I think was ever given, Luke chapter 24. If there's one sermon that I could have heard, it would have been this. Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, some of Jesus' disciples were wa walking along a road and they didn't realize that they were talking with Jesus really until it was too late. 
And in the middle of this conversation, the, the tone changed. And, and this strangely familiar stranger started a preaching to them. And his text was the whole Old Testament. In verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So beginning with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Beginning with Genesis. And all the prophets, the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Good preaching is not simply explaining what the Bible says. Good preaching is a pillar that fixes you on the foundation of who Jesus is. It's very clear here. All the things concerning himself. And the whole, the whole Bible points to Jesus. Not in some weird mystical way, but it either presents a picture of Jesus or a prophecy or a prediction or a pattern or highlighting how badly we need him. All of God's word points us to Jesus. And the point of preaching, the point of that pillar is to remain fixed on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then I love this in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? We want to be a church with people whose hearts are on Fire. We want to be a church full of people with heartburn. People who are just, as they hear the word of God, glorify the son of God as that pillar connects us with that foundation that people would be overwhelmed. And then that, that produces spirit and truth worship. And so unapologetic preaching and unashamed adoration go together. But listen, that can only happen. It can't just simply happen because someone studies their Bible a lot. It can only happen by the power of the Spirit to open our eyes to see the Son as He is. And that's why unceasing prayer is so important. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This is one of the most important aspects of church life. Ephesians 6 is, is... the the broader context is spiritual warfare, putting on the armor of God. Ephesians 6 verse 18 says, after you have all of the armor on, this is how you fight. This is what spiritual warfare is about. It says, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So this is the picture in Ephesians 6, is we get all geared up with our armor of God, the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the spirit, and we go into battle. And how do we battle? We march into battle. We get right down on our knees and we say, God, we can't do it. You have to fight for us. That's it. That is how the victory is won. That is how the church grows. That is how sin is overcome. That is how addiction is broken. That is how marriages are restored. You put on the armor of God and you fight on your knees and ask God to fight for you. That is our calling. And then to go right along with this, if we are going to make disciples, prayer, notice how they all flow into each other. Worship to preaching to prayer and then to evangelism. The, the next verse he says, and also for me. Paul says, pray for me too. And I, I can't even believe that he says this, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth. I wouldn't think Paul would have a problem with words. I wouldn't think, when I read about Paul, I wouldn't think that he would need a prayer request. I won't picture him filling out a connection card. But he says, would you please pray for me? That words 
that words would be given to me, not just his words, but words from God to speak to specific people in specific situations. And he says that in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That, that we would do it boldly. Remember the mystery of the gospel we talked about last week? It's not like the Bermuda Triangle. It's like a good novel. And when he says the mystery of the gospel, it's not that, oh, we don't know what the gospel is. No, the mystery is, is that there was a time in which we were trying to figure out, but now we know it. And he says that I should, I should proclaim it boldly. Boldness is simply having the courage to speak clearly. We speak very vaguely and very carefully and very quietly about things we're ashamed of. Hey, uh, how's that rash? If someone were to ask you, you know, that across the table in public, you're shutting that conversation down and changing the subject as quickly as possible, aren't you? Why? Because there's a sense of shame. That's something, that's something personal. It's something awkward. And so we speak very little and very infrequently about things that we're ashamed of. But loved ones, we, we're not ashamed of the gospel. And so we're called upon to, to share the good news with boldness, to be unafraid, to have the courage to speak with clarity about who Jesus is. And so those are our pillars. So we've got, we've, got our, we've got our mission, we've got our foundation, and then our pillars are all keeping us fixed on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And as we do these pillars together as a church, it's going to produce something. The pillars aren't an end in itself. God, God doesn't just want a structure. No, God wants a family. And so the pillars are creating an environment where people can grow and develop and love one another. And so we move from, from our, our mission to our foundation to our pillars and now our people. And we want to be clear. Again, we want to be clear about our expectations. This is what we're looking for. When we talk about making disciples, this is what we have in mind. It's going to look a little bit different for different people, but there, are, there is a general family resemblance that all of us should have as the people of God. So this is what we're going after, our people. It starts with, we've got to be worshiping Christ. We've got to be worshiping Christ. And this is what worshiping Christ looks like for us. Believing the gospel, gathering weekly, praising expressively, and giving financially. It starts, with, it starts with believing the gospel. We want people to turn from their sin and to relate rightly to God and to receive forgiveness. And so we want that for every unbeliever. And maybe you're here today and you are an unbeliever. Maybe today's the day for you to turn from your sin, to admit it, to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you've sinned against God and believe that Christ died for you and to commit to follow him as Lord. But the gospel is not just for unbelievers to believe. The gospel is for believers to, that's why we're called believers. We believe the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel. The trouble is we're so forgetful. And that's why gathering weekly is so crucial. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let's hear the pages of God's word turn in the hands of God's people. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. The author of the Hebrews writes, he says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope 
without wavering. Basically what he's saying there is keep on believing. Don't stop believing. Hold on to the confession, the confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the substitute for sinners. How do we hold on to it? How do we make sure we don't let go? It says, for he who promised is faithful. God is going to look after us. And this is the way that God chooses to look after us. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. God's means of helping us hold on to our beliefs is the provision of community. That's what God wants us to do. Then it says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, you need the church, and the church needs you. God's plan for keeping you a Christian, God's plan for helping you put sin to death, God's plan for the people beside you, To do the same is for you to interact with one another, to gather, to not neglect gathering together. And then when we get together, we call on our people to express themselves, to praise expressively. Psalm 47.1 says, clap your hands, all people. Shout with loud shouts of joy. And so we want people to, to be dialed up, to be intense, to be all there in their corporate worship together. And then giving financially. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. We believe that financial giving is part of worship. One of the things that we're careful to, to say in our church when a staff or a leader is giving announcements, we, we, we try not to use language like, we're going to get back to worship later, but right now we need to collect the offering. No, the offering is part of the worship. It's part of what we're called to do. So much is said about the idolatry of finances. And when we give in church, we are helping to put in debt, to put to death and lessen the, the, the grip that, that greed so often has on our lives. So 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. No one should feel forced to give. For God loves a cheerful giver and the reason why God loves a cheerful giver is because God is a cheerful giver and so when we give he sees himself he sees his own generosity bearing fruit in our lives as we are generous as well so that's what we are calling people to do and listen worship is a broad topic I mean we could we could say so much more about that but if we were to summarize it in four things that's it we want our people to be worshiping Christ next we have walking with Christ. Walking with Christ. And this is what walking with Christ looks like for us. Practicing personal disciplines and participating in a small group. Personal disciplines. Things like a Bible reading and prayer and evangelism. You see, when we just think about it as disciplines, we, 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 we sort of miss the point. You see, the way the New Testament describes a relationship with God is not a list of things to do but walking with Jesus. It's a metaphor for living your life. And so you picture that going along your life, you're actually walking with Jesus. And so Bible reading is Jesus talking to you. Prayer is you talking to Jesus. And then evangelism is you talking to other people about Jesus. Here's the thing. If you start to walk with Jesus, something you're going to find is he doesn't really follow. 
Sometimes we come to Christ and we decide, oh, I'm going to walk with Jesus. Hey, walk over here and, and help me with my business or, or help me do this or, or come on, come and join my team. And Jesus is like, uh, no, I'm not doing that. If we're walking together, Jesus is like, I'm going to set the pace and I, I, I'm laying out the course. This is the direction where we're going. And, and, this, is, and this, is how, this is how witnessing fits into it. When you're walking with a friend and another friend comes along, the first thing you do in everyday conversation is make sure that everyone knows one another. And evangelism is as simple as that. If you're walking with Jesus and someone comes along, then it's only natural for you to introduce that person to Jesus. And, and, and that's what we are doing. And here's the other thing. The longer you walk with Jesus, he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's going to lead. He's not going to follow. And he's going to be taking you to specific people and saying, introduce this person to me. The other thing he's going to do is he's going to, as you're walking with him, as he begins to take the lead, he's going to walk you right into a community, which leads us to participating in a small group. Some of us think, oh, I'm going to walk with Jesus, but it's just me and him, you know? It's just my personal relationship with him. That's not his intention. If you're truly walking with him, you won't be walking alone. You'll be walking. He'll lead you right into a community. Let's take a picture of that community in, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts 2, 42. So practicing spiritual disciplines, but also participating in a small group. Acts 2 is the, the picture of the initial gatherings of the early church. The first sermon ever preached in the, uh, in the church was given by Peter. A whole bunch of people were baptized. And here is a picture of what the church looks like. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being Save. So did you notice that in, in verse 6, how they were meeting in two, sorry, verse uh, 26, 46 rather, how they were meeting in two different locations. They're meeting in the temple, a larger group, where the apostles were actually preaching live. But then they were also meeting home to home. There was a larger gathering and a smaller gathering. And do you notice how the community, the way that they were relating to one another was such a powerful witness that God added to their number, just as people were observing the way that they were loving and caring for one another. And do you notice, going back to verse 42, that word devoted. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. See, I would think that as we think about Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton, that we're a people that are devoted to the apostles' teaching. I see people coming with Bibles. I see people taking notes. I see people wanting to learn more, wanting to grow. I think it's clear that we are a people that are devoted to the apostles' teaching. But... As I think about my own life and as I think about our church, I think the area in which we need to grow is being equally devoted to the fellowship. Not just spending time listening to sermons and attending services, but actually investing time. In the same way, it's hard work to listen to a sermon. 
And I'm not making it easy on you today. I know that. In the same way that it's hard work to, to wrestle with God's word and to find out how it applies to your life, it requires effort. It requires devotion. It also requires devotion to live in community with one another. And I think God is calling us in this new season of our church to go deeper in our relationships with one another. I think it's absolutely crucial. Walking together in a community. So we want people who are worshiping Christ, who are walking with Christ, and then lastly, who are working for Christ. And this is what working for Christ looks like. It involves sharing responsibility, serving with humility, and focusing vertically. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, 1 Peter just turned, um, uh, just, just, just past the book of uh, Hebrews and the book of James, and then 1 Peter will be right there. 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 10. It says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It says that each of us have received a gift. That's the assumption. Then it says, it gives a command. As each has received a gift, use it. Use it for what? It says right there, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. To be a steward means to manage the property, to manage the possessions that belong to someone else. If you've been given a gift, it's not really yours. It belongs to God. And, and it's, it was given to you for a reason, for the church. You are commanded to use it to serve one another. Now just take a step back here for a second. Can you point to a regular time and place in your calendar in which you are using your gift to serve the church? Can you look at 1 Peter 4.10 right here and then look at your schedule and see that is where, the, well you might be saying, well Ted, 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 serving is so much more than just a date in the calendar. Listen, I agree that it's more than a date in the calendar, but it's not less. Can you actually point to, this, this is when I'm doing, this is when I'm doing 1 Peter 4.10. I've been given a gift, and this is where I'm using it. If that's not happening, if there's a disconnect between what the Bible says and what your schedule says, you need to pray about that. And you, and you need to seek God's face and come up with a plan to bridge the gap between what the Bible says and how you are actually living. And then 1 Peter 4.10 also says that we're to serve one another. That's the second thing, serving with humility. So we're sharing the responsibility. You have a responsibility. You've been commanded. You're a steward. You have to do it. But there's a way in which you're supposed to do it. It's to serve with humility. You know, Jesus commanded us to do a lot of things, but almost never did, did Jesus ever say, what I'm doing right now, do exactly the same thing. I mean, when he fed 5,000 people, he didn't say, now, you guys go do that. So I covered dinner, you guys got breakfast tomorrow. He, he didn't say that. He didn't say, do what I'm doing. When, when he healed the paralytic, he didn't turn to, to James and be like, you got next. That's not what he, he, 
He very rarely ever did something and then told his disciples, you're supposed to do the exact same thing. But there's one time when Jesus got a towel and wrapped it around his waist. And when he got a cloth and a basin and when he got down on his knees and he scrubbed 12 sets, 24 feet in total that were dirty from walking around the streets of Jerusalem that day. And then he got up and he said in John 13, 15, he said, just as I have done, you are to do. It's the only time. We're supposed to serve. And loved ones, it's really not that complicated. Do you love Jesus? Do you love this church? And are you willing to serve? That's, that, that's what Jesus has called us to do. And to serve with humility. Not looking for thanks or recognition or praise. Just do you see a need? And or do you see how your gift can help fulfill that need? And then lastly, focusing vertically. Turn to Colossians 3. This is the last place where we'll be turning today. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. Colossians 3, the, the, the immediate context here is written in the relationship between a, a, someone who's a slave and who has a master and has been given tasks to do. But we can take that principle out of that immediate context of slaves and masters and apply it to serving in the church. And so we're looking at this, this principle here of service. And Colossians 3, 23 to 24 says, whatever you do, Work heartily, notice this, as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. You see, because what we do, we serve with humility and we count it not just as a, as a project or something we have to do, we count it as a privilege to be able to serve the Lord Christ, even if it's something that's seemingly mundane. It all matters to God and therefore it all matters to us and it's all part of the greater purpose of making disciples. And notice how, notice how we've come a full circle here. Our eyes started on Christ who gave the great commission and he's our foundation and now when we get into actually rolling up our sleeves and doing the work, what are we supposed to do? Get our eyes on Christ because we're not serving men. We are serving him. So we're focusing vertically. He's our focus and he's our foundation. And so I want to close our time now together in prayer. And I just want, you to, ask, just want to ask you just to, to, just to be very still in this moment. Just to bow your head. And I, I want to, to challenge you. This is not simply, you know, close our eyes so that we can get ready for the next song kind of a prayer. I really want to ask that you would pray personally as we pray corporately. There's been, a, there's been a lot of things that have been said. This has been a heavy message as far as content goes, but I know that God has been saying some things specifically to you. And so let's, let's bow our heads together now and let's pray. Let's ask that God would help us to live this message out. And so our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our substitute. 
and the one who has, uh, who has made a way for us and laid a foundation for our church. And God, we lay before you our lives and we are not perfect people and this is not a perfect church, Lord. But we want to lean in. We want to rely on you, Lord. We want to press forward in our relationship with you and our relationship with one another. We want to be more bold as witnesses. We want to be more servant-hearted in our serving. We want to be more intentional in our relationships. And so right now, if God is stirring in your heart right now, if there's a a particular thing that that God is challenging you to do, just bring that before him. Make Make a resolution. Ask him for your strength, for his strength to, to strengthen you to be able to carry that out, to live for your glory, to be a part of his church. And so just ask him quietly right now. Where is he calling you to go deeper? Where is he challenging you to be more intentional? What have you neglected that you need to take more seriously? God, we praise you and thank you that you know every hurt, you know every fear and every struggle. God, you also know every apathetically rooted excuse. You know our hearts, you know what's better than we know ourselves. And God, we know that you love us. And we know that as you are calling us as individuals to be closer to you, that you are also causing us to be closer together, to be the supernatural church of the living God, to be brothers and sisters, to be part of your family, God. I pray that you'd help us to get our eyes on Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we say and declare, this is our church, that we would also be saying, this is our Jesus. This is our Savior. This is our foundation. This is our very life. This is the reason why we live. So God, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.